Badger State Banner. 13 June 1895. The motto of the high school class of 1895 was, Work is the law of life. 3 August 1898. For the first time since 1893, all the Sheboygan factories are running full-time and with a full force of men employed in all departments. All arrears and wages have been paid to the employees in some factories where the accounts had been behind of many months. 23 March, 1899 Adolf Kuhlman committed suicide at Sheboygan by shooting himself with a revolver. Mr. Kuhlman had been in the employ of the Mattoon Manufacturing Company for 20 years, having obtained the position of the superintendent of the plant. A few months ago, he lost his position, and his inability to obtain another place made him depressed in spirits. He had gone to the barn to get his horse and take his children to school when he put a bullet in his brain. of work. What is the importance of work? You cannot count the number of days you work. You cannot think to count the number of times you have to do the things you have to do. You cannot remember them. You do them without remembering them, without wanting to remember them. Is this the way to live a life? In Paradise, our Puritan chronicler tells us Adam labored daily upon the garden, which needed no perfection, 
which never needed watering, weeding, tending, or care of any kind. But daily he did his work because it was his work to do. Without work, I do not eat. Without work, I shall be of no importance to others. What will happen to me then without work? That is why work. Work is the importance of life. When he returned home, a cripple and broke, he thought, who does not work, dies. P had three children in the first six years of his marriage, and his wife was pregnant again. And although they and he had been blessed with good health, his farm was a poor one, being near the mire, and was mostly sandy soil. His father had made as much as he could of it, and had sustained P and his mother and one lost brother for twenty years before he was widowed because of the cancer that slowly and painfully killed her. Then he gave the farm to P. But P found the weakened land spent, the deer were few, the rabbits scrawny. Now the harvest had been meager, and withering winter stood on the doorstep like death, waiting for entrance. His aged father added to his burden, and knowing this, the old man had sullenly refused to eat for several days, and P surmised he would starve himself to death by intention or result. So P sat at the kitchen table that night with his pregnant wife and made his father come to the table, and in the yellowing light of the lamp, their stark shadows upon the walls behind them like witnesses of their desperation. He told them, I'm going to go get some work east. No one said anything. P explained, I heard talk about a factory there. No one added a word. P said, Pays eight dollar a day. P sipped his teacup of straight whiskey and passed it to his father. I think I can send maybe $200 in a fortnight. P put his hand on his father's forearm and said, You'll all be fine till then. His father nodded and passed the cup back to him. The man who looked at him did not like him, though they had never met. Even fruit flies have predilections. Some will furiously attack others for a better sip of some sodden fruit. Some will timidly defer. Some will lightly go into the air. Others will drop in despair, I suppose. So we shall meet upon our life folks who despise us, or who like us, or who could not care less for us, and so on, and we ourselves shall have done nothing, said nothing, shown nothing, to warrant the response. And to be fair, I suppose we despise, like, or care nothing for them in much the same way. It is the predilection of fruit flies that governs all of us. So, when P was introduced to Mr. Boyle, the boss, the bull, 
the superintendent of the woodware works, he saw that he was already defined in his eyes by such predilection. And there should be nothing that P could do to alter that definition, though he must manage with it in order to survive, for his family depended upon him. P's philosophy was based on the idea of fact. What is known is seen, what is true is what is now. He therefore did not react to what he did not need to react to. That Mr. Boyle detested him was plain, but it was like the weather. A matter of nature and a matter of fact. If it will rain, then put on a hat. If it is cold, then put on a coat. But although Mr. Boyle plainly detested him, he offered to let him domicile in the offices where Boyle himself had housing, to take a cot near the entry door, provided he put it away each day so that it was not in the way of business and traffic, and to use the Franklin stove on which to cook meals. And this should save him a good deal over the cost of room and board uptown. This ambiguous kindness was not apparently motivated by good intentions, but none other could be surmised. Boyle had the better portion of the housing, it's true. He was indifferently generous thereby. But there was no gain in him to this, it seemed. The savings from the cost of room and board were critical to P, because he had been deceived as to the generosity of the wages that were to be paid. His earnings should actually be two dollars per day, he was told. Before expenses, said Mr. Boyle. He had no skill to trade. He was fit and clever, but he had no knowledge of the giant bandsaws that they applied to logs in the lumber mill adjacent to the factory of the goods in which he worked. And they were already fully employed in the yard with pigs and cats and other laborers who had come out of the north woods following the winter logging. And these men were much more adept at such work than he was in any case. The better-paying craft of lathing spoons, handles, clothespins, bowls, and such had not yet begun and he knew nothing of the lathe either, though he supposed he could apply himself to it and learn and master it quickly. Given how marginal employment was thereabout, despite the inflated advertisement that had lured him, he was grateful for what he found. He still estimated he could send home $30 to $35 at the end of four weeks, and that at least should keep his family. He took Mr. Boyle's word for it that he would be employed a lathe operator at $4 per day when the season for that work would begin, after they had readied the work for the lathe mill. And because P. had already been hired to the mill, he felt himself at an advantage to be hired for a better job. The great yard of the sawmill was upstream of the factory, on the shore of the town on the river where the logs collected from the logging, borne downriver from the abundant piney north, where the river snaked into the remote, lofty wilderness, where white pines stood as tall as Chicago skyscrapers and wide around as three men could span with outstretched arms. The river 
was a clog with fallen trees, driven down since the spring thaw, in numbers so great that you could walk several miles upriver over the tangled body of the logjam before there was a pool of clear water to be found. The jam stopped before the town at the jumbled limestone staircase that dropped its ragged cliff mid-river and spilled in thrashing waterfalls. There, overtopped these violent waterfalls, an enormous wooden trestle, bearing an enormous platform and bridge, was built to span the wide river and its deep plunge and its thundering turbulence, a platform and roadway wide as four or five bridges, like a town in itself. The original sawmill was built there first, and then several more mills added and then factories and warehouses, spanning the entire river on this platform, suspended above the turbulence of its crash and churn in order to exploit its perpetual power by several interlattice turbines, which drove a complex of saws, lathes, conveyors, grinding stones, and other machinery for a massively combined industry compiled of those many sundry eccentric buildings that stood chock-a-block and independently enjoined by this common water-powered machinery on the span of this enormous platform and bridge. And thus, synergistically engaged, these interrelated manufacturers provided the lumber, wooden paraphernalia, and the flour for the bread we all eat. All of this, P. learned, was solely owned by one hugely wealthy man, Mr. O. of Chicago, a famous multimillionaire whose palatial stone mansion stood on Washington Square Park, opposite the great Gothic Athenian marble, First New England Congressional Church, to which he belonged whose stained-glass windows memorialized his ancestors and under whose altar lay a sacralized relic of the original Plymouth Rock, whereupon these ancestors had stepped first upon this continent to civilize its wilderness in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mr. O's young son was the actual, though often absent, day-to-day -day manager of the industrial complex, in which Mr. Boyle was just one gear for its human machinery, responsible only for working the factory of wooden paraphernalia, although P. had mistaken him for the master of it all, based upon the swollen style of Mr. Boyle, until he saw the matter more truly by what he factually observed. P. worked alone in the firelit bowels of this industrial leviathan, in the infernal glow of faggots beneath the overhanging flooring of the mill and its combined factories which spanned the river and spread along the shore, in the very pit of the mill works where the turbines thrashed in the open maelstrom of the live river which drove weeping water wheels and the extended greasy axles crossing overhead, and the enjambment and closets and coves of clock-like gears and cogs, rackety ratchets, wincing clutches, slipping belts. 
grinding, groaning, and roaring energy that is man-made and natural. The noise of their collection made his body resonate like a tuning fork. Where he stood on the sandy floor of this cavernous sub-basement, various chunks, wastes, and pieces of wood tumbled and shivered on a conveyor carried down to him from the sawmill above, where scraps from lumber sawn from logs were cast into a great dark rattling maw by the sawyers at their band saws. P took these odds and ends and sorted them, tossing misshapen burls and sharp splints into hills of faggots to burn, but those with potential shape he tossed into one of four conveyors around him, larger or smaller, according to which might be fit for bowls, handles for broom shovels or axes, spoons or clothespins. These pieces were borne on the clattering canvas conveyors into the darkness above him to dump onto the wooden floors of the various factory places where specialists would eventually lay them to carefully machined specifications. Toothpicks would later be made from scrap taken from these. The only light, the glow of the faggots of wood scraps that served no other purpose, tossed by him in the random rotation of his motions, added heat to the place, which was already stifling with the heat of a sun he could not see. A white sun in a pale sky that had blown dry and hot wind for many weeks. Though it was late September, it was hot as the hottest summer. P. worked without his shirt, without trousers, essentially nude. The sawdust, the sand, the soot of the fire mixed with his sweat and coated his face, his torso, his arms, his legs his eyes showing white from this oily, glistering surface upon his nakedness gave him a demonic appearance, the scarlet hide of a lewd Satan, naked in the fiery radiance of this foundry of hell. Or, so it may have appeared to the young woman above him, who looked down at his nudity with fascination and who suppressed her amusement behind demure embarrassment. Boyle had appeared on the catwalk above him with a man in a cream suit with cream shoes and a woman beside him in a summery white gown and a white, white-feathered hat. P stopped to peer at them. His nude figure facing her gleamed in the glow of the faggots. He could not hear what they said. She stood at the railing to look down at him as Boyle and the well-dressed man conversed with energy and self-absorption, and then turned to climb the stairs to follow them to the office. She kept her gaze upon P, even as she turned to join them on the stairs, slipping her gloved hand along its railing as she climbed, and he glimpsed beneath her rising skirt a naked calf, above her elegant shoe as she went up the stairs. He had seen her before.
He first met Boyle in the office, where he stood at his position behind the counter, jotting figures in a black ledger with a pencil. He licked the lead of the pencil as he used it. The office served as the company store for some tools and such, kept on a bank of shelves that loomed behind him. He had listened to what P said, and to P's explanation of himself. P felt he said more than necessary, but the man said nothing to him. He asked nothing. He told him indifferently how much it paid. Take it or leave it. P did not ask what his job was. Boyle then pointed toward the corner away from the front door and offered to let him sleep there, to use the front office and to put a cot down that he had, explaining he expected him to do a few chores in return. He repeated, take it or leave it. P nodded his acceptance, again not knowing to what he agreed. Boyle came out from behind the counter and shook his hand and introduced himself by his surname. Call me Boss, or call me Boyle, he said. Boss Boyle, handsome as a stag, broad as an oxback, was a big man, big in all the ways a man can be big, big-legged, big in his girth, big in his arms, big about the neck and big in his head, on his head a shaggy mane, his voice booming and big in the opinion of himself. His hand wrapped P's hand like a baseball mitt. Big, big, really big balls, Boyle would also brag. And as big a prick as you'll ever see, he'd wink, and meant the expression in more the ways than one. Boyle dressed as big as he acted. Big black well-polished hunting boots and black stovepipe pants which showed off his exaggerated manhood to its advantage, and about his great barrel chest a strawberry vest with the sumptuous collar of a fine, fresh linen shirt with billowy sleeves and pearl buttons at the cuff. A dandy in his dress, a pirate in his heart, winsome or crass, Boon or treacherous, fiend or friend as he chooses, but always, always a lascivious lecher of women, and a jealous adversary to every man, and so he prided himself without apology or misgivings. Out of largesse, Boyle offered to stand P for lunch, and showed him out the door and into town, which P had hardly visited having made his way to the office immediately from debarkation of the steamboat that had brought him. P. had seen few towns as grand as this. Boyle greeted many citizens and was greeted by many citizens as they strode the boardwalk under candy-striped awnings of a long block of retail buildings. Some storefronts held mannequins adorned with expensive clothes. A small bakery displayed lustrous desserts in its sunlit window. Boyle took P to the best restaurant in the best hotel in town on the main street. There, among the potted ferns, fine patrons 
like the impeccable mannequins and expensive clothes, like the frosted desserts, sat ostentatiously at white-clothed tables with glittering silver service before the tall, wide picture window of this gilded establishment, sitting so as to be seen by passers-by as much as to see those passers-by. They lavishly lunched. Boyle exchanged nods with a well-dressed man and a woman at one such table as they passed before the window. He held the door for P to enter before him. Boisterous, loudly with open arms, Boyle greeted two men sitting at a table in the dining room, clapping them on their shoulders, neither as splashy in costume as he. The first one, sallow and lean, stiffly clad in a staid dark suit, Boyle introduced to P as the manager of the flour mill and the second, a fat man in filthy overalls, a pink-cheeked Rubens wanton, if he were a woman, he introduced as the boss of the sawmill. Neither said a word to P. The stiff, lean, lugubrious boss asked Boyle with an affect of grief, Your new man? Boyle nodded, and looking at the well-dressed man and woman at the picture window, he asked, Been there long? They saw where he looked, but did not answer. Boyle sauntered to the well-dressed couple. He, a small, delicate man in a creamy suit, wearing matching creamy shoes, and she, lithe, blonde, taller than he, in a white summer frock, her feathered hat upon the table between them. Mr. Boyle bowed to them and began cordial conversation. The fat man in overalls nudged his mashed potatoes with his fork, heaping it, and as he brought the object toward his mouth, he said to P, Owners. He spat his words with a mouthful of potatoes. Mr. O and the Mrs. Boyle made colorful comments that Mr. O enjoyed and reciprocated while his young wife demurely sighed. Boyle, catching her sigh, deferred to her presence saying something to charm or please her, or so P imagined, as she smiled at him pleasantly and warmly. Boyle indiscreetly touched her shoulder, leaning close to reply intimately to her small comment. The touch was observed by Mr. O with some discomfort, but Boyle looked back at him and joked, so that Mr. O returned a beaming smile which he let shine upon his wife. Boyle stood and held Mrs. O's chair for her looking after her as she walked away, but turning to address Mr. O when he spoke to him. Passing the table where he sat, P felt a drift of warmth and perfume from the lady, a scent of flowers, a scent that reminded him of crushed violets, with which his wife sometimes infused her tea. The memory saddened him momentarily. Boyle, returning to the table and sitting, said, I want to lick, and grabbing a plump waitress as she passed and hauling her to sit astride his lap, he nuzzled her neck and said, Ice cream, Bertha, 
Bring us ice cream. He winked at his friends. I need something to lick. And he flicked a long tongue into the cleavage of Bertha's bust, who slapped him merrily, missing his cheek as he ducked his head aside. Boyle carried on business in terms P did not understand as the two eating before him nodded, grunted, responded with annoyance. Boyle assumed some privilege endowed by the owner, which annoyed them, but neither challenged it. He warned them of the owner's concerns, and the both of them suppressed irritated response. Boyle enjoyed his capacity to needle them. Mrs. O. returned from her toilet or the refreshment of her appearance, for she looked more lovely, and passing their table brushed to the chair where Boyle sat and said, Oh, I'm sorry. And Boyle tried to bring his big body fully into the table and said, Begging your pardon, Mrs. And because she lingered against him, almost seeming confused, the men uncertainly began to stand. And so she said, looking embarrassed, No, please, do not get up. And then left them with the fragrance of the memory which P. held and went to rejoin her husband. Bertha brought his bowl of ice cream, borne in both hands aloft, like the grail maiden, a sumptuous portion in a gorgeous dish, a silvery bowl glistening with the sweat of chill, which she carried by its pedestal to the table. All the men put their eyes on her, or it, as she brought it, and leaning her bosom bulging in her bodice, she set it before Boyle. Already softening in the heat, his vanilla ice cream was glossy with the melt of it, cream running at the encircling edge of the dish, but still it held its shapely, pleasing cupped mound, and atop it three red raspberries, and stabbed into opposite sides at each edge of the melting mound, twin lady fingers of blonde, sugary sponge. Bertha handed him the matching specialty silver ice cream spoon, and Boyle, looking upon her bosom as she loitered, leaning before them, said, I'll be back for some of that later. Bertha, laughing, left. Boyle picked one and then another raspberry off the top of the mound of ice cream, dripping with confection, and sucked each and ate each with relish. Then, making a conscious presentation of it, positioned the last raspberry in the center at the top of the ice cream mound, and leaning, licked a circle about it, taking up cream with the tip of his tongue and looking up at the others when he had, nodding conceitedly at what they should see that he presented, the display of the protruding raspberry on the rounded mound of ice cream. The fat boss across from him rolled his eyes, and the lugubrious boss warned him that he was being watched. Which one? Boyle asked. Her, said the lugubrious one, not looking that way, earnestly addressing his knife and fork. No one looked that way, except that Boyle dared to glance. Then lifted first one lady finger, sucked on it where the ice cream had soaked its sweet, plump tip, and bit it off, 
and wedged the half of it back into the ice cream, then did the same with the other ladyfinger, lingering and romantically indulging upon it, before he pressed the second half-eaten into the face of the ice cream beside the other. Then, with his spoon he carved, he shaped the softened ice cream about it, and between the two blonde fingers shaped a furrow, and nosed and lifted the spoon in the cleft between the drenched fingers, and licking off of it the melt which he had gathered that way, he winked at P. And finally, asking if she was still looking, the stern man nodding slightly without expression to tell, Boyle leaned and sticking his tongue out, wriggling snake-like, the tip of it long and unnaturally effective like all the rest of him, nothing about him of normal proportions. He licked between the blonde lady fingers in the melt of the ice cream, closing his eyes, and with exaggerated puckering kisses slurped and sucked. The fat boss shook his head, his jowls jiggling as he grinned and said, You are a dog. What? protested Boyle. What? His mouth slathered with melted ice cream. But licking his lips liberally, he leaned and confided a reference in an undertone to the other man with a wink, inaudible to pee. They guffawed, while P looked at them all with confusion, and Boyle said to him, It's the ice cream, my man, the ice cream, and resumed eating his ice cream in the normal way, while P worked on the remains of his lunch of roast beef. Be careful, said the lugubrious boss as he stood, checked himself for neatness, put the precise payment on the table, and left to return to work. Boyle returned to badgering the fat boss about his sawmill, reminding him, the crews will be coming, coming soon, too soon. You'd better have the factory well fed before they get here, or Mr. O will have your ass slung on a boom. He can suck my dick, said the fat boss. It's not he you're thinking of, said Boyle, and they both laughed. The fat boss then explained what he was about, and what he had planned, and how he would meet and exceed expectations, and Boyle said that was good, and said, pointing at P, this man is going to the pit tomorrow. Send it fast, he can handle it, sure. The fat boss, eyeing P over the rim of his cup as he sipped his coffee, said, maybe. P walked back to the office with Boyle who stopped behind him from time to time to flirt with a woman or to cajole some man for some wager or for some other jocular social intercourse or another. At the corner of Emory Avenue and French Street, Boyle burst into the saloon there, swinging the door wide with a loud announcement of his pleasure. And hailing the barkeep for a whiskey, he joined a crowd of laborers at the bar, whom he chastened for being tardy to return to work. They took his chastisement good-naturally and returned insults in kind. He shot his whiskey quickly. The men eyed P suspiciously. 
As was their custom, they sized him physically. They found P, like any able farmer, well-proportioned, having large, tough hands, sunburnt even without a hat, which he was not inclined to wear, though his wife often nagged him to wear one. Boyle took a wager, and removing his vest, his tie, and his shirt, which he carefully draped over the back of a chair, he set about a contest of bare-chested arm-wrestling with several sawyers at the bar. He put his money down and goaded them. Just to look at his torso, you saw he would defeat them, any of them. A man muscled like a bull. They took his bet on taunts he made, but it was foolish, and they knew it. They were defeated by their own pessimism, if not his easy strength. He dominated them with the smallest effort, and an affected boredom, meant to humiliate the losers and delight his admirers. He picked up his winnings, tossed down another two shots, and dressed, carefully taking care with the careless manner in which he tied his tie. Coming back to the office, he seemed a more sullen and serious man. He went behind the counter and entered a few ciphers with his pencil in the ledger, then closed it and put it in a drawer under the countertop and looked up at P as though he was surprised that he was still there. Abruptly he commanded P to follow him and pointed the way around the end of the counter where they should pass between an almost hidden narrow gap in the floor to ceiling shelves, mostly empty of any goods and into the long, wide, unvarnished open floor behind it, an enormous, cavernous, empty storehouse, dimly lit by shots of dust-specked sunbeams streaming from high windows in the eaves. And at the far end, P saw a staircase, rising to an elevated platform, Boyle's private chambers, which, with its clapboard exterior wall and its twin balancing half-curtained quarter-paned windows, a solid oak front door between them looked exactly like a small cottage built inside of this lofty storeroom, like a life-size diorama of such a cottage. Underneath the stairs and the stoop of this quaint cottage, P. saw the suggestion of a falling passage, an entrance that darkly descended by a long staircase as to a great deep cellar. That way to the pit, explained Boyle. Boyle pointed out the cot against the wall, folded next to a huge steel safe with the company emblem painted upon it, the lone furniture in the place, and repeated that P. may use it, but must keep it out of the way during business hours. He added that nowadays that was between 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., Sundays included. Mr. O. gives no time for Sabbath, and none is deserved by none of your lot. If you had a Sunday, you'd just get drunk and go whoring the night before. we got too much to do, so it's work, and work and more work for now. Boyle stared P. down for a reaction. P. displayed him none, as he himself thought. But Boyle perceived what he perceived and said, You get paid, so go fuck yourself. You got half a day still, 
I'll show you where. And going up into his cottage, he told P to strip off his clothes where he stood below the stoop. P did not understand, but did as he was told, having neither false modesty nor shame and nudity. Disappearing into his cottage, Boyle left his door open so that P looked up into it and saw that it was large, but it was a single large room, like a cabin might be. And central to it, a round pedestal table and an imposing ornamental oil lamp lit upon it. In form, the bronze figurine of a nude maiden, her bound hands behind her body chained to a ponderous stone mass, her feet in surging sea surf. The sacrifice of Andromeda, though P should not know this, from which mass rose a twirling, twisting tree of three brilliant argand lamps with crystalline, fluted shades which illumined the foot of a large brass bed and the darkling environs of a lavish decor that P had not time to fully apprehend. Boyle returned and filled the doorway, and seeing P naked below the stoop, asked, Don't you have any drawers, man? And shaking a sorry head, he said, Suppose not, fucking hicks. Boyle led P into the darkened staircase beneath the stoop, into a dark descent of iron, down a long spiral flight onto a narrow, swaying ironwork catwalk that hung stretched underneath the whole factory, held by pipes bolted to the undercarriage of the floor which spanned the entire river, the flooring to this town-sized wooden bridge, supported at intervals by trestles and perched shore to shore. The river roared beneath him, and P saw by some infernal gleam and a glance of remote daylight the great groaning water wheels splash, driving cogs, gears, and axles that turned the machinery that empowered the woodworks and mills above and around him. From the catwalk, another spiral iron staircase descended yet another three flights down to a sandy basement, the pit, the hidden shore of the live river itself, where wood scraps were piled beside a hill of embers shuddering beneath their ash. Beyond the distant edge of the cavernous bridge, he saw the painful light of day glare, simmering on the Sudsy River as it spread and drifted, spinning out to the distant bay where the river met the great lake. He saw, as his eyes adjusted to the light, the half-obscured hull of a familiar white steamboat, highly glossed, where it abutted the pier below this factory complex at the harbor of the town. Boyle, shouting, pointed and told him what he was to do. Feeling how hot it was, P comprehended why he should wear no clothes, but it was also as he would find because the soot 
The sawdust and the sand would cling to his sweating skin or soil his clothes so badly he would as well burn them and go naked anyway. Boyle left him, and he descended to do his work.